0: You're listening to the Together in Literacy podcast, a podcast for educators, families, and advocates that connects the research of reading, dyslexia awareness, and the whole child. We're your hosts,
1: Casey Harrison and Emily Gibbons. As two literacy dyslexia specialists, we've come together to talk about literacy, dyslexia, and the connection to the social-emotional impact that it has on our students, their families, and the educators who serve
0: them. We welcome you to join us on this exciting and educational journey into dyslexia as we come together in literacy. Please
1: be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us at www.togetherinliteracy.com.
0: Thank you for joining us today. Let's get started. Well, hello, everyone. We have an exciting episode or episode 13 (laughs) of season two for the Together in Literacy podcast. And I'm here with Casey. Hi, Casey. Hi, everybody. She has um, been discussing so many exciting things with me going on in her life and, you know, as an educator and, oh, I look forward to having her share those with all of you, (laughs) have some good planning sessions before we start recording. First, we always like to kick off with some feedback. Hooray for feedback. This one's from Misty Mir, and she calls this one dream team. Casey and (laughs) Emily are my two most favorite dyslexia experts and educators. To enjoy them together in a podcast is amazing. They share relevant and important information as well as actionable tips and tools Their combined experience and knowledge creates a goldmine of information in a friendly, welcoming format. For me, they offer the validation and motivation I need to continue my work as a dyslexia and OG interventionist. I recommend this podcast to parents as well as educators. Well, Misty Mir, we thank you so much, first of all, for referring to us as the dream team. That's pretty cool. (laughs) And for also for recommending this to parents too, because we think that parents and caregivers can absolutely benefit from listening to these episodes um, just as much as educators. Absolutely. So thank you for that. And of course, as always, if you'd like to leave us a rating and some feedback, please do so. And we would love to share it on a future episode. All right. And without further ado, we're going to kick off episode 13.
1: Episode 13. All right. Well, really today, what we wanted to talk about is an extension of what we bridged in Episode 10, which where we really talked about the science of reading and making sure that we are not using the science of reading as a buzzword. So, in that episode, we took time to clear up any misconceptions about what the science of reading is, what it isn't, and really it kind of got us talking and if you listen to that episode Emily and I really talk more about how we would really love to bridge into using the science of learning because as we dig into the history of you know the science of reading we know that part of the reason for the movement was really is rooted in our work with dyslexic learners our struggling learners and really advocating for better literacy instruction And so, you know, we have groups that are striving for change in our classrooms across the globe. And the science of reading is a body of research that incorporates insights and research from multiple disciplines, including the, you know, educational psychologists, developmental psychology, cognitive sciences, which we're going to talk about a little bit more today Mm -hmm. and cognitive neuroscience. And really we want to know that it's, it's this culmination of, research that has been conducted over the last 50 years, you know, Emily and I are always talking about how this is, (laughs) for us, this is something that, you know, we, we have known about the research for some time, but it hasn't necessarily been mainstream like it is today. And we're really grateful for that. But I think it's important to also note that it, that research is coming from thousands of studies across languages as well. So this really is a global conversation that we are having. And so as we, you know, looked more closely at the science of reading, we really, we realized that there are some key components that could and should be seen across curriculums. And so really at the heart of science of reading, it looks deeply at how we learn and studying how we learn has always been a dynamic field of research. And at one time, you know, in our field. We talked about constructivism as, you know, being considered the preferred approach for students to learn in the classroom, but because our field is dynamic and we're looking at current research, we know that there are shifts that have happened and that our current research, right? If we're looking at cognitive load theory, it's really revealing that that is not to be the most effective. So with that shift, Really, you know, we're looking at furthering our scientific study, our scientific knowledge, and remembering that education is not a static field, that we're always learning. And so today, that's what we're going to be talking about. How can we advocate that shift of just focusing on solely the science of reading to the science of learning? And Emily and I are going to, we're going to explain some of the reasons why we really Feel that this is beneficial to talk about and share some of the resources that you may want to consider for building your own knowledge base.
0: And, you know, we'll try to present some reasons about why we're advocating for this shift to the science of learning. You may already be thinking about it Mm -hmm. personally. We think it should be on a (laughs) (laughs) t-shirt. It's coming, Emily. It's coming. (laughs) now. So we're going to shift into a couple of parts here. We are going to talk about why we're advocating for this and who's going to benefit from it. Then we're going to talk about the key components, the main points that we feel are at the heart of the science of learning. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to wrap up with a list of books that we recommend you guys want to check out to increase your knowledge. So why are we advocating for the shift from Simply calling it the science of reading to the science of learning. So let's go into these reasons. All right. So, shifting the name, we feel, to the science of learning provides an opportunity to be more inclusive of all subject areas. And because it is more inclusive of a term, it acts as an invitation to educators in other disciplines. Mm-hmm. It invites them to look at best practices, things that we, that have connect, been connected to reading and writing and those skills can be applied across all the subject areas and different life experiences. So we think that at the heart, it's like a great big invitation to be more inclusive.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And when we think about our students with dyslexia and we think about I know for myself, accommodations, right? And talking with educators and parents about accommodations in subject areas beyond reading and writing. If we are looking at through the lens of the science of learning and what research is telling us about how our students learn, we can see why it's important to bridge that information into math, into science, into social studies, where we are asking our students to incorporate their reading and writing skills, but also within life experiences. So if we are thinking about our students with dyslexia, and we also know that a lot of our students have comorbidities, right? They have coexisting learning differences. It really does mean that we have to look beyond just the reading intervention if we want to see progress being made.
0: So true. And Casey, just to piggyback you, know, we had an episode in season one on accommodations. We and did. when we looked at those accommodations, we provided a list of suggested ones we thought that would be useful, that would not just be applied in a reading and writing circumstance. It would be across the subject areas so that they could be applied in all areas of learning for these students. And so when we look at Calling it the science of learning, it, it recognizes and honors the fact that we have people with dyslexia that don't just struggle with reading and writing. They may also right. struggle in areas of math, with executive function, with attention. And so we need to look more globally at those areas in order to see that progress being made for sure. And the third reason we think that there should be a shift is that. When we think about studying the science of reading, sure, it has been a really great and worthwhile discussion and or debate, right, depending (laughs) on where you are. But studying the science of learning, we think, is just as worthwhile a discussion to have for all educators to have in order to drive change. And to look more carefully, we think, at your school improvement plans. Mm-hmm. So for instance, I am on a committee with my children's school, uh, just as a personal note, in which we are developing the school improvement plan over a five-year period. It's a very lengthy project. But I feel very grateful and honored that I was chosen to be part of that process so that We realize that we can look at the way the students in my children's school are learning and the programs that we think will best support them based on the most current research. So this science of learning discussion can be had across the entire faculty, the entire district. Everybody can be involved when when we're talking about the science of learning. Absolutely. I love that, Emily. I love that you are part of that
1: group. That's that's going to be very powerful for, yeah. for the kids. So that's great. And, you know, as Emily said, right, this isn't to take away, this is actually to increase how we're looking at the science of reading, what, you know, if we're, if we remember that it's coming from this body of work, this body of research that's incorporating from these different disciplines, that means we can look at the other disciplines and think about how they are impacting other subject areas. You know, in the science of reading, we're always talking about explicit instruction, and that should be happening in our classrooms. We can, you know, take a step back and think, well, where else does explicit instruction make sense in math and science, right? We want to Make sure we're providing our students with the information that's needed to help them find success and understanding what that means for cognitive load and and, and things like that. So it really is an invitation to find those commonalities and how we learn across the subject areas.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I love how we're referring to this as really an invitation and that we're opening the doors up even wider. Right. Yeah. And then our last reason that we feel we're advocating for the shift of the science of learning, Let we think about our focus. So we have really steered our focus on to the science of reading and that had had numerous benefits. It had really shifted our discussion. It had pushed change. It continues to do so. The science of reading discussion continues to be alive and well and thriving because we know there are plenty of schools that still need to get on board, right? Let's face it. Mm -hmm. We we know that that conversation isn't going to end. But now if we are able to shift this conversation even more broadly to spread out the information about how all our learners are, are learning best. You should be starting so that we aren't feeling like we're leaving students out, and that especially the ones that are struggling in other areas of reading and writing. So, for instance, the science of reading. There was a misconception, I think, for a while that you know we were talking about putting in changes to help people with dyslexia, when in fact this is helping the majority of the readers and learners in your classroom. So. Taking a look at that at the science of learning, we are able to encompass a broader group of students that have all kinds of learning differences, not just ones who may present as having dyslexia. Right. And
1: I think that's such an important point, Emily, that you made right about not leaving anyone out. And I think the more that we understand about how the brain learns, yes, how how the brain learns to read, but also how the brain learns information our working memory our long-term memory all of those things that that are being researched and the more that we understand about that and how that impacts our instruction in the classroom it's it really is going to benefit all of our students and as Emily said right when we're looking at our reading scores and our focus was and is for Emily and I especially working with our students with dyslexia but I think it's important also to note we can also have students with dyslexia that are gifted that are two E that are twice exceptional. And what does that mean for their instruction? How do we honor their learning journey to make sure that we are nurturing their areas of giftedness while still working on addressing their areas of need? And I think all of that, again, comes back to being mindful of the research and what we know about learning.
0: Right. And so I think at the heart of all of this is that by shifting to the science of learning. We are honoring that uh, the fact that we have diverse learning Mm -hmm. happening in our schools across the board and that we are looking globally at ways to help all children and not just in areas of uh, reading and writing. As we shift into part two of this discussion today, so we were talking about, you know, who does this benefit? It can benefit everybody, right? Mm-hmm. And why we're advocating it. When we start to name off our key points, apologize because we kind of have a lot of them because that's how (laughs) Casey and I roll. We end up just going on and on. And then we realize, oh gosh, maybe this should have been two episodes, but whatever. (laughs) It's one episode. (laughs) So we have key points that we want to highlight. And that is, these are the things that we feel our learners need to be successful. And We have applied these key points to the science of reading. So you may be thinking, okay, yeah, I've heard these when we're talking about the science of reading, but what we want you to do is we're prompting you as you listen, we'd like you to envision how this will look in classrooms in other subject areas and how it will benefit children in, in those classrooms in the different subject areas. So we're talking about math, content, like science, social studies, all of that history. So we'll get into these points in just a minute, but just sort of try to imagine outside of the realm of your literacy block here or however you use that time in your classroom and see how it can be applied elsewhere. Right. Okay. Yeah. I think the first one you know that
1: we wanted to touch on is setting lessons up that are going to promote for that gradual release of responsibility. That is not unique to reading instruction and is certainly a key component of reading instruction, but you can apply the gradual release of responsibility across your subject area. So In season one, episode 10, Emily and I have a whole episode dedicated to the gradual release of responsibility and what that looks like and what's that, what that means. But I really think that that is such an important piece for setting students up for success, whether you're teaching math, reading, science, whatever your subject area is.
0: Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And by promoting or designing lessons that to promote gradual release, we are setting our students up for greater success. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much the, the goal by using that. So yeah, you probably have heard us talk about gradual release, <laughs> like, so many times like oh my gosh here they are again <laughs> but we we have a great episode you should definitely you know, get a little refresher and listen to that but it's so important okay so the, the second main point here we are with the science of learning discussion is that when we are focusing our shift to the science of learning here we are talking about now, this is not just in literacy, but you still continuing to honor the systematic progression of skills that build upon one another and spiral back so that we're building in that review. So we're te- it's teaching that emphasizes well-developed, carefully planned lessons that are designed around small bits learning so in increments that are really clearly defined. We have specific teaching tasks that are prescriptive even along the way and so we want to really really be careful with uh what it, what curriculum we're using and the choices that we decide to make and making sure that it is a systematic approach that we're not hopping from one skill or one topic to another. For instance, if I was a history teacher and I had to teach about the Revolutionary War, to be perfectly honest, I couldn't really go into the events of the Revolutionary War without building up to that systematically and talking about the French and Indian War. Couldn't. Those are events that sort of led up to that. So that is an important discussion if we're talking about a content area outside Mm -hmm. of literacy
1: right building that background knowledge all of that comes into play when we're talking about this progression of skills and thinking about how things build and emily and i've talked about this you know in numerous episodes whether we're talking about handwriting instruction like what are the skills that build up to that those start early on as a baby those those skills that we're developing that transfer into handwriting right or written composition or reading application or math so all of if we're thinking about learning learning fundamentally has building blocks. And so we want to make sure that we're being mindful of that systematic progression of skills so that we're really setting students up to link knowledge, to bridge their practice into application.
0: Yes. And in addition to that systematic progression, we know that, okay, so we've got our carefully designed curriculum mapped out for the year, but there's also opportunities for review and Mm -hmm. actually an emphasis on that review and careful practice that is woven in that is designed to build your children towards a level of mastery, right? Instead of an overview of this topic, this topic, this topic, no, a carefully designed progression that will be able to weave in bits of review They're carefully designed into that lesson plan that's going to help students move move that needle keep them moving up that hill towards mastery okay absolutely and you know to kind of build on that
1: if we're thinking about our instruction and we're our planning and looking at review and looking at how we're introducing it we really want to make sure that we are mindful of the language that we're using with students and the way that our information is being presented if we're really clear, we can, with our instruction, we can eliminate misinterpretations. And that really is going to help us improve and accelerate learning. So, when we are clear and specific about what we want students to learn and we're mindful of, of how we're going to engage them in that learning, it can really set our students up for success. And when we think about lesson design, I think this is something we have to be really mindful of because we can make sure that we're telling a student what it is that we're going to be learning about, helping link any background knowledge that's necessary, being really specific about what they're going to gain in the lesson, and then remembering to, as Emily said, right, review or even close the lesson out by restating the goal. That is really going to help us improve and, and as Emily said, move that needle forward.
0: I love that when we think about precision and language, oh, we were talking about that in episode 11, season two, by the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the things that matter in our intervention, precision and mm-hmm. in language. But by having precision and language or common language, that the point Casey was making can greatly improve and accelerate learning. Think about that. The way your content is presented in precise way, that means really looking carefully at the heart of one of the main points you are trying to drive into your content to help your students learn. That is going to accelerate the learning process for Mm -hmm. them. Why? Because it's clear and it's concise. Okay. All right. And then the next part, and this is really supportive of the research done in cognitive load theory, mm-hmm. which by the way, we will make a little suggestion at the end with the book that we think you should pick up. Don't be afraid to learn about cognitive load theory, by the way. Sure, right. it's really sounds super sciency and it is. However, <laughs> uh, it once you read and, and dig into it, it makes a lot of sense. It does <laughs> It just does. And the things that are highlighted in the book that we'll recommend later are things like breaking down the learning task into small, manageable parts. My goodness, where have we heard that? Like over and over and over again, right? Breaking down learning tasks into small, manageable parts. Oh my gosh, we all know that. We all yeah. have been told to do that, right? And not yeah. just for the challenge learner. Sure, we need to do that for them. This is supportive for all children when we're talking about science of learning, okay? But within that, we want to be providing some other things. Scaffolds, so appropriate scaffolding, knowing when that should be released. We can learn more about that in episode 11. Guidance, so appropriate guidance along the way It within that gradual release framework. And, and we talk about this one a lot too, immediate corrective feedback, Yeah. all right? So offering that. But what we're doing is building up both knowledge and application of skills over time. So it's process, small, manageable tasks, scaffolds, guidance, immediate corrective feedback, leading to success, application, learning, all of those things. They're so lovely.
1: I love it. Yeah. I know. Cognitive loop theory in a nutshell. So yeah, it really um, is. Yeah. And so, you know, coming so bringing and thinking about all those things and then just thinking also about that student engagement. So looking at those pieces, but then also looking at our students and their engagement. And sometimes, and I know I have done this, if I think back of lesson, uh, my lessons that I've taught before, sometimes our students are really engaged in the activity And maybe not as much in the actual learning of what was expected, right? Have you ever had that happen, Emily, where they're really engaged in something and then, but the actual application or like taking in of the knowledge that you wanted them to have is not what you thought it would be. So
0: I have an awesome example of that. Do you mind if I interrupt? Yeah, go for it. Okay. So back when I was teaching third grade, all right, I was responsible for teaching the engineering design process, which is really, really interesting to me. I love it because I can, sort of compare it to the writing process. It's very similar Mm -hmm. steps, the engineering design process. So we had in science class, we were designing water filters with these third graders and they were testing them out. Okay, so we had our polluted water. We were testing out the water filter using these soda bottles. Really cool, super fun, super messy. Kids totally engaged, You know, just laughing, having a great time. Were they really getting to the heart of what I was trying to teach, which was, they were able to systematically go through the engineering design process steps. Hmm, that is where things started to get a little muddied. And so I had to sort of go back and and steer them back. Like, okay, so now what is the next point in the engineering design process? So sure, the activities, I think is what Casey is mentioning here, can be super engaging, super exciting, a lot of fun, but are they really hitting the mark. Sorry, Casey. That was my example. No, that's a perfect <laughs> example. And I love that you brought that up because you're
1: exactly right. When we are thinking about this, we need to understand that students can be really active in their work. with love actually it. learning the key <laughs> concepts. <laughs> right. Right. So, right. That, that leaves <laughs> us with the, we have to be very mindful of instruction. Right. And so we have to kind of ask ourselves these questions, right? Like, are we providing too much busyness of an activity maybe solving problems without learning at the level that's needed to transfer that knowledge to their new learning right we're always looking at moving learning forward so mm-hmm. are we perhaps having students doing activities that are just solely for busyness or are they only able to, to solve those specific problems but not understand the concept behind it to to apply it to new learning you know, We can ask ourselves, are we engaging students in activities where they're executing the instructions, but it is maybe so taxing to do so that their mental capacity is effectively exhausted, which would leave little ability left to notice maybe patterns, orthographic patterns, or patterns in math, or whatever it is that they're learning. So we really just kind of want to think about, you know, are the students busy, but not learning? or are they able to actually take that knowledge? So I think if we're looking at that right, we want students engaged in activities where high levels of success are promoted in order to increase that engagement. Looking at, that really comes into bringing in that gradual release of responsibility, doing that constant um, checking in if they're understanding what's happening, providing that immediate corrective feedback so that we are sca- we can provide those scaffolds prior to their independent work or knowing when we need to review, do overviews, modeling, and things like that. Just like you did, Emily, when your your class didn't get it, you realized you pulled them back in and did explicit
0: teaching. Right. The right? other thing is I have this conversation is for us to sort of be mindful of the fact that have we, have we done enough modeling? Mm-hmm prior to wanting them to get into that independent practice. And that is where I think we sometimes unfortunately fall short. Yeah. I think sometimes we don't, may not do enough modeling. Okay. um, In order to push them to be able to move that mark. So in the, perhaps in the, I do it phase Mm -hmm. and moving into the, the, we, into the, um, we do it. Okay. Yeah. So being really careful with that area. One other point, something to just to sort of shift gears a little bit here with science of learning is really considering the way we design what's happening in our small groups mm-hmm. instruction. So of course we know small group instruction is really important, right? right. Uh, not just for our challenge learners, but to really be helping all children succeed right they all deserve and need some small group instruction time for a variety of reasons but we need to think about what is happening there are you using that as an opportunity for them to maybe get some direct instruction from you so that you can so that when they leave your table they're able to go practice mm-hmm. are you using that time to just totally review so that they get a little reteaching and then go back and maybe review. And then after they leave you, maybe perhaps complete an activity or play a little game that supports what you just were reteaching or reviewing. So we really want to think about the purpose of what's happening in our small group for so long. It's been like, okay, small group instruction. I, you know, got to get my, my reading books out and make sure that, you know, we're teaching with the book and, but small group instruction can really be designed in so many different ways to help children make progress. So I think that the word here, if I could think about it is to consider being diverse in what you do in your small groups. Yeah. I also think, you know,
1: people are starting to reflect on how they're grouping students within the general classroom to Mm -hmm. address need-based versus sticking solely to level quote unquote levels that people would put them in so that we are really honoring each child's learning journey. And we're addressing students that maybe are gifted and also have an area of need, right? There's ways we can allow students to have a little bit more fluid grouping based on need instead of, or nurturing need and nurturing instead of, you know, just static levels.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking even in math class, you're passing out those exit slips at the end of your lesson and those kids that may not have really gotten to the heart of the salient points that you were teaching, Mm -hmm. what the objective was. Okay. So you're going to pull those small, those kids into a small group and really do maybe a little bit of reteaching to see, okay, who's getting that. And that is a totally fluid group. That might be a group that just meets, you know, a couple times and that's it. They're dissolved. And then you meet Uh, with another group of kids. It really depends. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And then I think finally, and this is really an important one, is realizing that we as educators know that, should know, and this comes directly from the book, Explicit Instruction by Anita Archer, that there are different levels of knowledge Mm -hmm. and that these levels of knowledge are going to to move your children towards more independent learning, not only that, it's going to teach them how to self-regulate. You probably hear that term self-regulation a lot. (laughs) Lately, we're having discussions about executive function, but it is one of those areas that children need a lot of support and help with, um, some more than others. So the levels of knowledge, or so we're thinking of, of how to move them Towards their independence, um, we uh, mark them as declarative knowledge. That's the knowing the what and the when. Mm-hmm. Moving on to procedural knowledge, knowing the what and the when before, but knowing the how, the procedure of how this happens, and then finally the conditional knowledge, and that is where we see application. That's knowing the when to do something and when not to. And that le- those levels of knowledge can be applied anywhere, Um, even with having discussions about classroom behavior, like what's appropriate, what's not, or the types of questions you have during classroom discussions or classroom meetings. It doesn't just have to be applied to content area knowledge. Right. And so these levels of knowledge that we are discussing, we'll uh, refer to that book one more time, but it was from Explicit mm-hmm. Instruction by Anita Archer. Yeah. But this is something that, you know, takes really some time to learn. And we sort of are reminded of the episode on the Peter Effect. That we did where it was the level of what are what, there was teacher knowledge and student knowledge and how that can help um, increase progress and um, success. So that was episode 12 from season one, if you're interested. Yes. So as you can see, we <laughs> pull Gosh, that was a lot.
1: Yeah, it was. Well, and I think it's so great because it actually highlighted the fact that we're not just looking at one area of research or study or theory or instruction when, when you and I are working with students, right? We are actually pulling from cognitive science and cognitive neuroscience and, and thinking about, you know, that developmental stages that are occurring. So when we're looking at what it is that we are asking our teachers to do and, and really honing our craft Digging into the science of learning is really necessary. So, we want Mm -hmm. to recommend some resources that we both find to be very helpful and that you may as well.
0: All right. So, I'll go with the first one. All right. So, the first one that we're recommending is by Stanislaus Dehaene. And you might recall that author's name when he had written the book Reading in the Brain. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, all on the science (laughs) of reading. But He wrote a book called "How We Learn." Yeah, why brains learn better than any machine for now. (laughs) Little (laughs) caveat, right? So we, so what DeHane has done in this book is really look very scientifically at brain research and and how the things that we can do to enhance learning, and memory, and really at any age. So this is, once again, based on the latest research brain research out there in neurobiology and cognition. So we really think that this is a worthwhile read, especially if you had read his book, reading in the brain. I read how we Learn," Casey, gosh, like right when it came yeah, out, a um, while. I'm looking at the copyright. So that was 2020. So yeah, I, gosh, I remember reading it then. So, um, it was, it was great. So sure anything by this author is going to be a, a deep dive. It's going mm-hmm. to be a deep read, but definitely worthwhile if we're talking about the science of learning. Okay. Yeah. Another one, and I know
1: Emily already mentioned it, but it is explicit instruction, effective and efficient teaching. What works for our learners? And that's by Anita Archer. And I have to say, I adore all the work that Anita Archer does. And I really feel like both Anita Archer and also Dr. Engelman who was the person who he founded the direct instruction model those were two educators that I found early on in my teaching career and I feel have really kind of forged my own journey so anything by Anita Archer I find to be amazing and Dr. Engelman is amazing as well but this book by Anita Archer, is an easy read. I think it's really meaningful. I think
0: every teacher should should read it. So right, and this is a book that was specifically written to be used. Yeah, uh, any grade level, any content area. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about science of learning here. Explicit instruction is definitely something that you want a copy of Absolutely. for sure. Yes. All right. The next one in our list is think of it like a little handy pocket guide to cognitive load theory. Absolutely. So this title is called A Little Guide for Teachers, Cognitive Load Theory. And it's by Greg Ashman. This book, I'm holding it in my hand right now, is very small. It's only, gosh. I have it as well. It's like 70 pages, maybe 60. It's only like 63 64 pages long, and think of it as just like cognitive load theory in your back pocket. They so Greg Ashman has tried to make understanding cognitive load theory um in I think a really readable and accessible Mm -hmm. way for classroom teachers, and applied a list of like recommendations and implications that you can think about like to apply to what is going on in your classroom. So he'll right. pose little questions for you to consider at the ends of the chapters. And he also provides a lot of good examples. Yeah, I was just going to say uh, that. the yeah.
1: examples are great.
0: So I found myself underlining, highlighting a lot of little parts in this book. Quick read. So yeah. it won't take you very long, but if you are just starting your pathway or not, to understanding cognitive load theory to be able to explain, you definitely want to pick that one up. I yeah.
1: And it. it's teacher friendly language, too. It's not so jargon yeah. heavy. So, yeah. I don't have this next book, Emily. So, I'm going to like. Oh,
0: you- I could talk about this one, too. Okay. So, the next one is called Neuro Teach Brain Science and the Future of Education. Mm. This is by Glenn Whitman and Ian Kelleher. I threw this in here because the authors are really inviting. They're calling on educators to really look at the way the brain learns. And they recognize that this is sort of a hole in our understanding when we think about our teacher training. How many of us really studied how the brain learns when we were becoming classroom teachers? Probably not very many of us. So the authors try to make this, once again, very accessible, going through um, the brain research, you know, the latest brain research of how um, we learn best and how to apply really the research uh, into the classroom setting. So I just think another book to just have in your arsenal of science of learning materials, it's just one more thing. I'm going to get that one. And once again, very, very readable, written for educators. So pick that one up. Great.
1: And And the last last book that we recommended, I know it's one that we've mentioned before, but it is called Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning. And it is by Peter Brown, Henry Roediger and Mark McDaniel. And this is really a book that draws on Um, recent discoveries in cognitive psychology and other disciplines to really offer some concrete techniques for becoming more productive learners so that is a good one as well uh,
0: great discussions on spaced repetitions too Casey we were talking about make it stick gosh which episode was that was that the one on games I think we did talk about it on games and I believe we also
1: mentioned it in our gradual release of responsibility episode as well. I know- I love that
0: games episode we did back in season one if you haven't listened to that. If you have been with us listening (laughs) all the way to the end of this episode, you may have noticed that Casey and I tossed out about- five different episodes you should just go and listen to after this. So just feel free to fall <laughs> down a little rabbit hole of together and literacy and you'll, you really will, you'll thank us for it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that happens because, you know, it's like a little onion, everything we peel back, but everything's also yeah. connected, right? So yeah. uh, we do keep yeah. coming back to different places where we've spoken about things.
0: Absolutely. So we hope that we have convinced you that you would like to make this shift towards the science of learning discussion, okay, and spreading that far and wide while continuing to honor the pathway that the science of reading has created for all of us. That is a valuable and important discussion, but this one we think is, is really, really so, so fascinating and can be, once again, just a great big invitation to all educators to study. Absolutely.
1: Right. And if you use Science of Learning, make sure you tag us on social media. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook. And Emily and I, I know... I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn and things like that, but we, we really would love to see the science of learning kind of starting to be used more in the educational circles as well. So, and
0: give it some wings. So by helping us, by, by tagging us, that would be awesome.
1: Absolutely. And you can take a little piece of science of learning with you because I know for myself, I love wearing teacher shirts. How about you, Emily? Oh my gosh. Love. love. (laughs) So we have added together in literacy shirts and merchandise, and it will also have science of learning shirts to our website. So if you would like to get a shirt that promotes the science of learning together in literacy, you can find the link here in the show notes and also on our website. And make sure you tag us. I have been wearing mine. I'll make sure I post it on my social media pages
0: as well. But we would love to see those. Together in Literacy merch makes a great gift too. I'm thinking, you know, like (laughs) Teacher Appreciation Week. I'm thinking maybe Mother's Day birthday. What days, you name it, like any time is a good time to give a gift with Together in Literacy merch. So we're go. really excited about that and can't wait to see people wearing them. So uh, thank you so much. Yes. Yeah, so you'll find that link in the show notes, but we also, we always have a blog post that accompanies every episode. So you can find the blog post on togetherinliteracy.com. Uh, Thank you so much. The next time we uh, join you, we will have a guest. We have a couple of guests coming up. So this is exciting. Really, really looking forward to this conversation next time. All right. Thank you so much. And we hope that you've enjoyed this discussion and enjoy the rest of your day. Bye everybody. Bye.
1: Thank you so much for tuning in to the Together in Literacy podcast today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a positive review and subscribe to the podcast. Each comment means a great
0: deal to us. And if you have any questions for us that you would like answered on the Together in Literacy podcast, please contact us at support at togetherinliteracy.com. Be sure to visit the website, www.togetherinliteracy.com, for show notes, downloads, and goodies. Thank you for helping us spread the word about the Together in Literacy podcast. We'll see you next time.